Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Banninger. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we will be talking about Jane Kenyon's poem, Twilight, After Haying. Abram, could you read this poem for us? I'd be happy to. Twilight, After Haying. Yes, long shadows go out from the bales. And yes, the soul must part from the body. What else could it do? The men sprawl near the baler, too tired to leave the field. They talk and smoke, and the tips of their cigarettes blaze like small roses in the night air. It arrived and settled among them before they were aware. The moon comes to count the bales, and the dispossessed, whippoorwill, whippoorwill, sings from the dusty stubble. These things happen. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grasses. The last sweet exhalations of Timothy and Vetch go out with the song of the bird. The ravaged field grows wet with dew. That is a beautiful poem. I love it. Jane Kenyon for the win. I love Jane Kenyon. Jane Kenyon. <laughs> oh, Jane Kenyon, everybody. No, this is this is just one of dozens of beautiful poems. So Jane Kenyon was an American poet who was born in 1947 in Michigan. She goes to college at the University of Michigan, where she studied with the American poet Donald Hall. They ended up falling in love and getting married. And then... For decades, they lived together in rural New Hampshire on a farm and wrote poems together all day, every day. That, that was their life. That does not sound bad. <laughs> it, it was a wonderful life. They loved each other deeply, and they were each other's best critic and best champions. Uh, and it's just, it's wonderful, wonderful. But there was, there was difficulty, too. So Jane Kenyon was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and wrote about that and reflected upon it in some of her greatest poems. One of my favorites is Having It Out With Melancholy. It's a terrific poem. But she also had poems that were attentive to ordinary daily life in New Hampshire, but also attentive to to current events. She wrote about the first Iraq war. She wrote about the Civil War, the American Civil War. She her her range of interests and influences it, it is exhaustive, right? And even in this poem, you can see some of those influences really popping through. Yeah, and one of her powerful influences was John Keats, who we covered in the last episode. And in fact, that poem poem that we covered on Autumn was deeply influential and moving to her, and she wrote her own poetry in response to Keats's Autumn. And others have compared her work to Keats's in many ways, but as we can see from this poem, there are a lot of commonalities, there are a lot of similarities, but there's also quite significant differences. And to think about what this poem is doing that Keats might never have done is one way to think about what is the tradition here that we're dealing with and how is she both drawing from Keats and distinguishing herself. So if we think last uh, episode, we talked about how Keats in many ways wanted to serve as a kind of field recording of autumn. The sights, the sounds, the feel, the taste, the touch, the smell of autumn was what he was going to get down in that poem without really coming in and making some grand proclamation or declaration. In many ways, this poem does that within the poem 
but it also does more. So for those who don't have the poem in front of them, they're just listening. This poem has five stanzas. And the second, third, and fifth stanza are really kind of Keatsian in that way. They're, they're very observational. They're just looking at things. They're detailing things very carefully and precisely. The second stanza starts with the men sprawled near the baler. The third stanza is about the moon counting the bales. And the last stanza is the Timothy and Vetch, the bird, and the ravaged field growing wet with dew. And that would be very Keatsian to leave it there. But she doesn't leave it there. She has a first stanza that starts with this, yes, yes. And this fourth stanza where she says, these things happen. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grasses. So, Joanne, when you look at that first stanza, how does it change our sense of the poem? Well, you know, when when we chose this poem and we were discussing it uh, earlier, you had just a simple question, which is, you know, to whom must she be speaking? It's hard to know, but it does seem like she's speaking to someone, and perhaps this is just an interior discussion. Perhaps this is just the poetic speaker sort of ruminating on what the soul does without the body. But how interesting that it begins with yes, which feels so affirmative. Yes, long shadows go out from the bales. And yes, the soul must part from the body. What else could it do? There's this repetition of the word yes, which feels affirmative, but it's a a stanza about inevitability. It's a stanza about endings, even before the poem is really taken off. And so it feels like a, a provocation Maybe she's trying to reassure someone of this fact of life, and maybe that someone is herself. It it feels like the poem is already grappling with our mortality in very immediate ways. Yeah, and you know, I like what you say there about how do you affirm the inevitable? I mean, to not affirm it doesn't change it. (laughs) That's right. And so, and so, there's this aspect of emotional processing that seems to be going on, and I love that the sense that we've talked many times about the importance of repetition in poetry, and here the the fact that there are these two yeses it it feels like she is in a, in a certain sense moving herself into an acceptance of what is in fact inevitable so there yeah there are really different ways of reading that stanza on the one hand it's just hey look there's a fact of life get over it or it could be I cannot quite accept this fact of life, but I'm trying to get there. That's right. That's right. And then, as you say, I I love how you connected this poem with To Autumn, which we discussed last week with Brian Rejack and Mike Tooney. And, you know, they brought up this idea of, of how attentive John Keats is in almost creating this like field recording of the environment. And we spent a lot of time talking about the world without us. But this is, in many ways, this is a world with us. So after that sort of exclamatory question of what else can we do? What else can the soul do without the body? She then transitions to the second stanza, the men sprawl near the baler. How interesting that they're sprawling, too tired to leave the field. What I love about that sentence, that first sentence of the second stanza, is that she's focusing on the presence of humans in this landscape and their labor. They are the ones that are exhausted. This isn't automated or mechanized, repetitive bailing of the hay. There's the suggestion that they did hard work. 
yes, she she's really being sensitive to the environment, but also the people and the labor that are in that environment. We were talking before about the sense of painterliness that she has. That, that she's she's in some ways a very precise painter, and 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 here you get this this enormous sort of scene of a field. And yet she is very carefully putting the tips of the cigarettes into the painting itself. And the same thing happens in the next stanza. The moon comes out to count the bales. I mean, how, how much bigger can you get? This cold, distant, calculating moon counting bales. And then what does she do? She zeroes in on the bird, the one bird among the dusty stubble that is singing. That's where, where our attention focuses next. I'm intrigued by that word dispossessed and how still against that dispossession, the bird continues to sing. I mean, one of the things I notice about that dusty stubble is it's another place where the imagery of death is is linked throughout this poem. So there's there are these, these sort of, you could almost think of them as baskets of images about life and baskets of images about death. And, and she's sort of balancing them against each other. So you've got cigarettes on the one hand and roses on the on the other hand the the night air is coming but things are blazing against it the moon which feels very cold and distant is there but then you've got this bird singing and then you have this dusty stubble which on the one hand both images of death right so stubble of course is what remains and then the dust from, from dust you are to dust you will return and yet at the end all of that is wet with dew. And what you have are, are, are Timothy and Vetch, which are basically wheat and tares. And the, and the tares themselves are, are a kind of cover that replenishes the ground and makes it ready for the next season. Yeah, so there's a cyclical quality to everything that she's describing. And whether she is feeling an internal struggle as she meditates upon this or not, it again, that inevitability is what completes the poem. Th- this, this language of this poem feels very accessible to me. I feel like I know what each of the words means, but that doesn't mean that I actually am right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, for me... I looked up the word bale because I, I think I know what that means. It's a bale of hay. It's it's a like a tightly bundled package of hay. But bale can also mean injury or harm or suffering or grief. And it seems really useful for her to have chosen bales of hay to be sort of the guiding metaphor for this poem, especially when we look at that second to last stanza. So she looks at the moon, comes to count the bales, and the dispossessed sing from the dusty stubble. And then look at that second to last stanza. These things happen. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grasses. It helps me as a reader to know that a bale is not just bound, but tightly bound. And the tightness of that binding of bliss and suffering, that that is part, that is the human condition. And even as you're talking about it, you can tell how she's binding the poem together with the sounds that she's using. So bale, bliss, bound, these words come together. So she is playing with sound in a way that makes sense of the poem itself. You know, one way you, you read a poem and you just think, oh, that's good. <laughs> that's just a good, that's just a good poem. But then you got to, what makes it good? How come it works? Just listen to the way that she's playing with sounds in the second stanza. So she's she's using tired talk and tips. The the K sound of talk fits with smoke. So talk and smoke, and then two lines later you get like, and then the like becomes night. 
the night turns to air, and the air rhymes with aware at the end of the stanza. And even that rhyme is so interesting. This is a poem that does not rhyme. This is a free verse poem that does not rhyme. And suddenly you have a rhyme in it. And it's, it's, it's a little bit surprising when you, when you come across it. But what is she describing in that stanza? She's talking about how the night air settled among them unaware. So they are, in effect, surprised by the night coming. And the rhyme itself almost surprises us when it shows up. Yeah, I I love it. And it's just that one stanza, that second stanza that you just described with the sounds, it's just one of many, many examples in her work. She, She has this beautiful, tight, lyrical stanza that she created many, many times over her career. It's so controlled and careful, and it seems quiet, but the longer you pay attention to it, the more you observe, the more you notice, and the more it makes you want to be the kind of person that notices so much detail with such precision. And I I love that about her work. Part of the detail of her poetry comes out in the, the very precise kinds of adjectives that she's using and the way that they kind of balance against each other. So if you even take a look at that last stanza, last sweet exhalations. Those two words, last and sweet, are doing a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and then exhalations is a very carefully chosen word for, to describe grasses that ties the whole poem, of course, back to bodies and souls. And then that ravaged field. So last and sweet and ravaged are the key sort of descriptors in that stanza. And then the whole thing at the end is growing wet with dew. It's turning over. It's beginning again. The life is coming back. I like that. That helps me understand why the poem ends the way it does. I feel like that final stanza provides a kind of resolution for whatever struggle she was sort of grappling with in the world of this poem. And in that second to last stanza, these things happen. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grass. It feels like she was able to describe the exhalations as the last and sweet precisely because she had that kind of aha moment in the second to last stanza, you know. And I, and I love how even as she has that aha moment, you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast, but she has these ellipses. So there we go with those patterns of repetition again. These things happen, dot, dot, dot. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grasses, dot, dot, dot. It's like she's trailing off into thought, and that trailing off is it's time. Once again, she's taking time to to look and to meditate. And with that time comes her ability to arrive at the finality and the sweetness of, of fall. This is, to be honest, one of the first poems I've seen with ellipses in them. And and it's it's interesting, the effect of ellipses, just that small choice on a poem. But it feels as though it is, again, doing the work of the poem where shadows are lengthening. The soul is very gradually departing from the body. The night is very gradually setting amongst them. And and the ellipses are very gradually sort of letting the thoughts dwell and, and, and extend. Yeah, beautiful. So, with all that said, would you like to read the poem for us again? I am always up for reading a Jane Kenyon poem. <laughs> I love Yes, yes I will. Twilight after Hain. Yes, long shadows go out from the bales. And yes, the soul must part from the body. What else could it do? The men sprawl near the baler, too tired to leave the field. They talk and smoke and the tips of their cigarettes blaze like small roses in the night air. 
It arrived and settled among them before they were aware. The moon comes to count the bales, and the dispossessed, whippoorwill, whippoorwill, sings from the dusty stubble. These things happen. The soul's bliss and suffering are bound together like the grasses. The last sweet exhalations of Timothy and Vetch go out with the song of the bird. The ravaged field grows wet with dew. Hmm. So good. For more information about Jane Kenyon, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Bye.